0: Almighty God, our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we come to you by the power of your Spirit, seeking your wisdom and your instruction and your guidance. Please remove all of those things which would distract us from receiving your word tonight. Help us to hold to a posture of worship as we continue to seek you. Please open our hearts and minds to hear you. We give you glory, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God, who has been, is now, and forever will be. We pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, we saw God dealing with Elijah after his lapse of faith. And we learned, I hope, some valuable lessons about how a lapse of faith does not end our relationship or usefulness before god we also talked about the importance of rest and getting alone with god and then when it's time getting back to the purpose for which god has created us today lord willing we're going to make it through chapters 20 and 21 um Man, I hope we make it through chapters 20 and 21. If we don't, we don't. But that's the plan, because Ahab is going to get worse, then he's going to repent. That was smooth, right? Nobody noticed? 1 Kings chapter 20, verse number 1. Now, Ben-Hadad... No, just so you know, um, I'm reading. Hold on one second. I just got to make sure I'm right. Yeah, I'm reading all the way up to verse 30. All right, so just keep that in mind. I'm going to read a big section. Uh, So now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house, and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for to your servant the first time, I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel saying, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. And then he said, Well, who will set the battle in order? In other words, who will lead them into battle? And the prophet answered, you will. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings, helping him, were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol and they said told him saying men are coming out of Samaria. So he said if they have come out for peace take them alive. If they have come out for war ah, take them alive anyway. Then these young leaders of the province went out of the city with the army which followed them and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them and Ben-Hadad the king of Syria escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain... Surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of that year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, And they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills or Jehovah is God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am Jehovah. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. It's a big wall, yeah. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city, into the inner chamber. So here we're given two battles between Ben-Hadad and the Syrians with the Israelites. These 32 kings, uh, they were likely vassal kings. They were not necessarily rulers of major nations. In the first battle, Ahab tries to avoid the fight by consenting to the first round of demands, right? Your prettiest wives, your best looking kids, all your silver, all your gold. You send that out to me and I'll go away. Now I'm thinking that Ahab agreed to this Because he was hoping to get rid of Jezebel. All right, we've we've seen what a problem Jezebel's been. And he's thinking in the back of his head, hey, I can finally get rid of this woman. (laughs) Yeah, Ben hadad take the women, this one first. (laughs) Not good enough for Ben hadad He comes back and he says, All right, well, yeah, we're gonna do that. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna send my servants in. And they're basically, they're gonna make sure you've given me all the silver and the gold. They're going to make sure you've given me the prettiest of the wives and the best of the kids. You know what? And if they see anything else, not that's pleasing in their sight, but that's pleasing in your sight. So you have to catch that. Right? If they see anything that you care about, they're going to take that as well. And Ahab goes, "Wow, well, that doesn't sound right. So he calls his counsel right he calls the elders of israel and they said no nope, this is a bad idea right and ahab clearly this guy just wants a fight so uh, and the, the 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 elders say this is a bad idea so he tells him nope we're not going to do that i told you i'd do the first thing i'm not doing the second thing and ben hadad says fine i'm going to take everything to the point that there's not even going to be a handful of dust left for every person Right? That's quite the threat. And I don't know where Ahab got the chutzpah. Right? He's Jewish. We got to use Hutzpah. Because he responds and he says, you know what? Don't brag when you're putting your armor on like the one who takes it off. Essentially, he said, don't brag when, when you're going into battle as though you've come home victorious. Because right? that hasn't happened yet. Prophet shows up and says, "All right, Ahab, you're going to go out and you're going to defeat the Syrians." And Ahab says, "All right, well, who's going to go out?" And he says, "The young men." And he says, "Well, who's going to lead them? You are." And so they go out. He sends the young men these 200. What was the number? 232, if I'm correct. Sends them out, and they've only got 7,000 men, right? And as they're going out, hadad hears about it. He goes, "You know what?" If they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, I'll take them alive too. Right? And you have to keep in mind, he's drunk. Right? He's he's They've been drinking for who knows how long. And they go out, each one kills his man, and they flee. So what happens? They get home, and all of his counselors go, ben haddad here's the problem. Their God, this Jehovah, he's a God of the hills. So as soon as we picked a fight in the hills... There, that's where they're strong because their God's a God of the hills. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to go back and we're going to fight them in the valleys because their God can't be a God of the hills and a God of the valleys. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So they changed locales. And God says, oh, really? You think I can only fight for Israel in the hills? He tells Abel, Ahab, go out. And he goes out into the valley And I love this this little comment. The Israel camp before them, verse 27, like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. I mean, 127,000 of them are going to die in the next few verses, right? Before the end of the day. Well, the last army that he mustered was 7,233 people. 7,000 men, 232 young leaders, and Ahab. So I can't imagine... They have many more this time. So you're talking one-tenth maybe? Not even that, probably one-seventh of the military force? And God says, I got it. So he sends them out. They wait seven days. They go to battle. And the children of Israel kill 100,000 foot soldiers. They flee, and some big wall Because God wasn't happy with the 100,000 that were already dead. He decided 27,000 more needed to die and he flicks a wall over on them and crushes them to death. Because why? Well, he's the God of the hills, not the God of the valleys. Big mistake. Don't ever, ever underestimate God. Now, I'm going to point out a couple things and then we'll move forward. The first thing I'm going to point out is that I am absolutely amazed at the grace and patience of God. right? The testimony we have of Ahab so far is that he has done more evil in causing Israel to sin than anyone who came before him. That's the testimony we have of Ahab. Bringing in Baal worship, causing the children of Israel to, to fall before these false gods, allowing his wife to murder Israel thousands of people and god says i'm going to take care of this so that you'll know that i'm the lord right he says it twice before each battle so that you will know that i am jehovah and this just speaks to me of his grace and his patience he could have just killed ahab but instead he's speaking to him he could have let ahab lose because of the sin instead he fights on Abra- ahab's i keep wanting to say abraham but on ahab's behalf even to the point that he knocks a wall over on a bunch of guys so that they would know that he was the lord it doesn't really work ahab um doesn't well ahab does repent but the nation doesn't we're going to get to that in a bit Psalm 86.15 says this, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. I was having a discussion with a pastor friend of mine this morning. And I said, you know, I am fully convinced, uh, not just because I believe the Bible teaches this, but based on experience, that God's grace and patience is inexhaustible now when you go to romans chapter one for those who have rejected christ he says that he will give them up to the debased mind he'll give them up to their sin if they constantly choose to reject him but if god's grace wasn't limitless if his patience wasn't endless he would have flicked a wall over on me a long time ago it's just incredible it's one of the beautiful things this is totally off topic but it's one of the beautiful things about coming to a place as a follower of Christ where you understand that there's absolutely nothing you can do to earn it. There's absolutely nothing you can do to deserve it, right? If you have a really good day, right? You spend three hours in prayer. You share the gospel with 482 people and 97 of them get saved and you feed the poor and you wash the feet of the homeless and you build houses, right? This is a big day, right? and you go to bed that night and then the next morning you get up and you cuss out the guy on the freeway and and you you freak out on your boss and quit your job and then you get home and scream at your wife and 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 you 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 know you spank one of your kids when they didn't deserve to get spanked and then you go out and you crash your car because you got drunk God loves you the same at the end of each of those days like Job It does Job learned that the hard way didn't he but God loves you just as much at the end of each of those days. Now, granted, he's going to be a little more pleased with the first day. And he's going to expect repentance and there's going to be consequences for the second day. But it doesn't change his love. It doesn't change that how much he loves us. And when we get to a place as followers of Christ, um, I'm going to flip over to Hebrews 4 real quick. Uh, when we get to a place as followers of Christ where we understand that, where we understand that there's nothing we can do to earn his love, there's nothing we can do to, you know, garner his favor toward us. It is such an incredible thing. I'm in Hebrews chapter 4 and I'm looking at verse 9 and 10. It says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, this doesn't mean we don't do good works. It means we understand that we know, and we're no longer trying to work in order to earn God's favor or to try to earn or deserve our salvation. We are his beloved. That is such an incredible thought to me. I think where we get in trouble um, is not that we can't make a mental assent to the fact that, as 1 John tells us, God is love, right? We love people. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love all of you, uh, right? We love people, but we are not love. That is not our defining characteristic. We can hate, we can be cruel but god is love it is his character to love us it's just who he is and because of that that love doesn't change because god's character doesn't change now there are some out in the world of christendom who are very very wrong who will say well but god only loves christians no there's a lot of verses that prove that statement wrong john 3 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life he gave his son for the world not for christians there weren't any yet romans 5 8 but god demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners christ died for us that's a demonstration of his great great love for each and every one of us so while we were still sinners christ died and so our problem is not making a mental assent to the fact that god is love or the fact that god loves us right we can go yeah, "Why? Well, yeah, i know god loves me i think our problem comes that we have a hard time receiving it right and mentally understanding it and receiving it are two different things and most people say well i'm a christian of course i've received the love of god are you still trying to perform are you still trying to impress because if you are then you haven't you may, I'm not saying you're not saved, right? Don't, don't take that from this statement. I'm not saying you're not saved. But have you really received that love? When you make a mistake, do you try to hide it? Because you're afraid, right? Like uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. We hid. For we were naked. And we were afraid. That reminds me of another really bad joke. The pastor was doing he was calling on folks from the church. And he came to one house and knocked on the door. My wife already knows the joke. Came to one house and he knocked on the door and and nobody answered, so he left his card and on the back he wrote, and I don't remember the exact reference, it's in Revelation chapter 3, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock and if anybody will let me in, I will come in and eat with him. The next Sunday, when the offering was taken up, the, the folks counting the offering got his card back. And he went, you know, they gave it back to the pastor. And there was a different scripture reference from Genesis chapter 3, which said, behold, I heard you, but I was naked and afraid. (laughs) Anyways. But we have to come to that place where we rest from our works, where we stop thinking that we have to impress God and truly receive his love truly understand that we are as followers of christ the beloved children of god and to help other people understand that they are loved more than they could ever possibly imagine and doesn't matter how much they reject him he will continue to love them now the character of god being love does not negate the character of God being just. Those two things can't exist. That's why Jesus died on the cross, so he could remain just and extend to us his incredible love. But for those who reject it, just like we need to receive the love of God for us, for those who reject that love, they will then receive the justice of God. Second thing I want to point out. Yeah, we're not getting through two chapters. Second thing I want to point out is it's very interesting how these people localized their gods, right? They, they think, well, there's a god of the hills, so we got to fight in the valleys because our gods are gods of the valleys, right? And then they have gods of the forest and they have gods of the water and so on and so forth. I recently read an article about a Sherpa. Right. And not not the folks who own the restaurant here in town, but but a real Sherpa who's a mountain guide in the Himalayas. And he currently holds the record for making the summit of Mount Everest. Uh, I think he's made the summit of Mount Everest 28 times, if I remember that correctly. Well, he'll do it two or three times a year, leading people who pay him large sums of money to take them up to the top of Mount Everest. Um during this interview right that th- this article was based on an interview with the man he talked about you know they're like well what's the secret to your success or right? how do you how do you peak the highest mountain in the world 28 times and he's like 50 um he's in his 50s now and he's like oh well prayer right sounds good doesn't it it's not he believes that Mount Everest is a goddess and that the goddess dwells in or on Mount Everest. And so he says before he starts every expedition, he prays and asks forgiveness for stepping upon his goddess. And he prays to the mountain throughout the whole You know, journey to the top, and he says, "When I get there, and everybody else, you know, the people I'm guiding, they run up to the top." He says, "I fall on my knees, and I thank the goddess for letting me make it before I actually step on the summit," because he thinks his god lives in a mountain or goddess. I think people can do this too, even today. Right? We know clearly can be doing today, but I think people can, even Christians, can do this. Right? We, have you ever heard people, I just can't wait to go to church and experience the presence of God? There's nothing special about this building. What makes the building special is that God is here. But you know what? When, when Oh gosh, <laughs> I almost said something kind of crude. When you're in the restroom, do you know God's there too? When you're taking a shower, when you're outside cleaning up after your dogs, God is there too. When you're sitting in your recliner, praying in the morning, God is just as much there as he is here right now. Um, That's part of him being omnipresent, right? He can't help but be everywhere all at once. Then, as followers of Christ, Jesus promised us that the Father, that he and the Father would make their home in us. And we know that they do that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Does that sound right to anybody? Because that's not in my notes. All right, Emil said it's right. So if it's not right, it's Emil's fault. No. Um, but that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't localize our, our God. We we don't say that, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to church because I really need to be in the presence of God. No, no you don't. You want to be in the presence of God? You are. Our problem is not whether or not We're in the presence of God. Our problem is our awareness of it. And I think in order to find awareness in the presence of God, we have to be still before him. We have to be quiet. We have to listen. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28, Paul addressed this idea of localized gods when he preached the gospel to those in Athens. said, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus... And said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Such a gorgeous statement. Because it doesn't matter where you are, and it doesn't matter what you're doing, God is there. Now, depending on where you are and what you're doing, that might be a, a, a bit of a frightening thought. Um, but most of the time, I think it's a really reassuring thought. Hey, we made it to verse 31. Then, the servants, then his servants said to him, right, and this is Ben-Hadad, because the end of verse 30, Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. And his servant said to him, look, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and they put ropes around their heads um, and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. No, he's not. Ahab. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, Your brother, Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, basically opening trade between their countries. As my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. I want you to notice something. Before he went out to war the first time, Ahab followed the instructions of God. Before he went out to war the second time, Ahab followed the instructions of God here he doesn't ask god never told him to make a commandment or a commandment never make um, never commanded him to make a treaty with ben hadad that never happened and ahab never asked right this is reminiscent of joshua making uh, a, a, a treaty with the gibeonites Right? They lied. They, they wore old shoes, brought moldy bread. They lied about where they were from. And instead of inquiring of the Lord, Joshua just made the treaty with them, which became a thorn in their flesh uh, for many years to come afterwards. Ahab, all he had to do was go, you know what? I've been talking to this prophet guy who's been fixing things up for me. I'm going to ask him before I make this treaty. But he doesn't. Verse 35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor... By the word of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. So the moral of that right there is, if a prophet comes up to you and says, Hey, will you punch me in the face? You might want to do it. Just throwing that out there. He found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the guy said, Okay. So the man struck him inflicting a wound then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes now as the king passed by he cried out to the king and said your servant went out into the midst of the battle right so this is the same day and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said guard this man if by any means he is missing your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver remember a talent was somewhere uh, between like 75 and 90 pounds it's a lot of silver And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Bless you. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand, a man whom I appointed for utter destruction. Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased. We're going to see that phrase again uh, up in chapter 21. uh, And it means that he was peevish, irritable or cranky and angry, sullen and displeased. So I like this. It reminds me of Nathan confronting David about his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Remember, Nathan came to David and he said, you know, my lord, the king, there was a man and he had this one little sheep and he loved this sheep like his own child. The sheep even slept in his own bed with him and he had a neighbor and his neighbor was very wealthy and he had flocks and herds. And the wealthy neighbor had had a visitor come and instead of taking from his own flocks and herds, he took this one little lamb and he slaughtered it. And David said, well, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. God has given you everything. And yet you took Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And David's response was, oh, crap. All right. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but that was his response. Go read, you know, Psalm 51. That was his response. Not, that's not a biblical word, but that was his response. And in that, he did come to a place of repentance. Now, God had given Ahab great victory. He had appointed Ben-Hadad for destruction, which will happen later. But Ahab failed to do it. So if, or when, we fail to do what God asks of us, I do believe he'll still accomplish what he wants to accomplish because he's God but I think then we miss out on what he could have accomplished through us think of Esther in Esther chapter 4 verses 13 and 14 right the whole book of Esther is set up you got the bad guy Naaman Naaman Haman Haman Naaman was the the Syrian with leprosy Haman um, and it's one of my favorite scenes from this season three of the chosen if you haven't seen it is they're celebrating Purim and as they tell the story, every time they come to Haman, everyone goes, psh, psh, psh. They like, they hiss or spit every time his name comes up. which I think is pretty great because Haman was a jerk. And Esther goes, well, I, I, Mordecai comes and says, you need to go talk to the king. She goes, I can't do that. He hasn't invited me in. If I go talk to the king, I'll kill me. And Mordecai told them the answer. And he, he says, do you think in your heart, that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews? Because really, you think because you have a fancy house, you're going to get away? He says, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I appreciate that. I meet a lot of people. And I'm, I'm going to close with this. Well, I'm going to make first this prophet. Jewish tradition says it's Micaiah, who we will actually meet in chapter 22. So we won't meet him. Uh, please read ahead. Um, but we won't meet him in an official capacity. But Jewish tradition says it's the same prophet. Um, but who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I meet a lot of people that struggle with where they're at. And I'm, I'm not pointing fingers or judging because I've done it too many times. They struggle with where they're at. Maybe they struggle with their job or they struggle with their relationships or they struggle with where they're living or they, you know, they don't want to be in the mountains in Gunnison. They want to be in the, right? God's not a God of the hills. He's a God of the valleys. I, I want to go down to Las Vegas. or something. I don't know. Don't go to Las Vegas. It's a horrible place. Um, but, you know, but they, they get this idea that... Um, in psychology we call it uh, healing fantasies and if you've never heard that phrase it's a really interesting phrase Uh, healing fantasies are when we construct a fantasy in our mind that if just this that or the other thing would happen then i'll finally be okay then i'll finally be happy right if i could just win the lottery right then i'll be happy if you know, fill in the blank. And I meet a lot of people who do this. Well, if, if, you know, if this relationship was just right, then I'd be okay. Or if if this wasn't going on at my job, then I'd I'd be okay. No, because you'll just, you know, find the next thing to not be okay with. Healing fantasies never work. But what I've come to discover is there are no accidents in the kingdom of God. If you're here... However you got here, if you're here, you're here for a reason. Now, if God chooses to move you on, that's between you and God, right? And who am I to say, I'm not God. But if you're here, right now, then right now, you're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. And God has a plan. And you know, I'll tell you what, if God does move you on and you're leaving on Monday, well, for the next four days, you're still here for a purpose and a reason, Because that's just how God works. Who knows whether you have come to Gunnison for such a time as this. Or if you're listening somewhere else, who knows if you have not come to wherever it is you're at for such a time as this. I appreciate that idea. Paul talks about being content in Philippians chapter 4. He goes, you know, I've learned how to be abased, and I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to, to have plenty, and I've learned how to go hungry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, people love to take that verse out of context, but ultimately that verse in context is being content in whatever situation it is that you find yourself. Oh, that's, that's a tall order, and I understand that, because I, for all of you who know me pretty well, am not a terribly content person, right? There's a lot of areas of my life that I'm, I'm very content with, right? I love my wife. I don't want a different wife or another wife. No, I love my kids. I don't want any more kids. You know, I love my job, not trying to get a different job. Okay, I'm not always content with my job. I have bad days like everyone else, but, but there's other places where I am just so not content, and I should be. I should just be like, you know what? When God wants to deal with this, he'll deal with it. And until then, I should just be okay with where I'm at. But I struggle with those things. Yeah, that doesn't mean we don't pray, right? Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Right? We have this promise from God. So don't get this idea. Some, some Christians get the idea, well, I'm just going to sit back and resign myself. To whatever's going on and god's going to do whatever he does right and there's a time for that there's also a time to get on your knees and start praying and say all right god this is what's going on and i need your help i need you to get me to the other side of it i need a solution i need your wisdom i need your guidance or you know what i need you to knock a wall over on a few people because man someone's got to deal with them and it's not going to be me all right don't pray for god to kill people it's not nice david did it a lot right go back and read the psalms because sometimes that's just how you feel but jesus you know told us to pray for our enemies not like that so i'm not saying we shouldn't pray because prayer truly truly changes things it changes us it aligns us with god's will prayer moves the heart of god Often to action in certain things. Now, we're not going to move the heart of God to do something that is against his will or against his character. That's why praying for God to knock a wall over on people today, it was not going to be the same. So I'm not telling you not to pray. Pray a lot. And keep praying. Be persistent in prayer. We're taught that. But while we're waiting, it's okay to be content. Because we're actually commanded to be content in our Savior. So let's pray. We'll get to chapter 21 in a couple weeks. Sorry, we were close. No, we weren't. Not even a little. Well, Father, I just want to come before you and thank you for your endless patience and your endless grace for each and every one of us. Help us to never use that as an excuse to sin. Instead, help us to bask in your grace and in your love moment by moment in our lives. Help us, Father, to always be aware of your presence and to live our lives to honor you. Please be with us the rest of this week and whatever else is before us as we move throughout the rest of this week. May you be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name.